Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we ask what, if anything, should be done about zero inflation, look at Bill Shorten and Elizabeth Warren's unity ticket on socialised childcare, and consider the possible fates of minor parties in the forthcoming federal election. In our final segment on books and culture, we'll look at Art Laffer's book on Trumponomics, another book on nationalism, a recent work on victimhood culture, and of course the obligatory pick from Netflix, The Remarkable Russian Doll. The Brains Trust in today includes, first of all, Dr Chris Berg. Hi Scott, how are you? I'm marvellous, thank you for joining us, although you don't have much choice of course. <laughs> no, being I'm contractually obliged. Indeed. Uh, also my colleague, IPA Director of Research, Daniel Wild. Morning all. Great to have you back. And finally, a new voice on this podcast, uh, research fellow Kurt Wallace. Morning, everyone. Great to have you, Kurt. How long have you been at the IPA? Uh, for six months. Excellent. And already churning out some uh, some great work, some of which we might talk about during the podcast. Whatever platform you're on, do make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any future editions. We're going to start off by talking about something that caught everyone in the financial markets and politics uh, by surprise this week, which was um, zero inflation. Now, I grew up in a very high inflation uh, environment in the in the 70s um, uh, when I was at school. That's what I remember. And then the, the battle was always about how to get it down. But now it's uh, at least on a quarterly basis, zero. Chris Berg, what's well, going yeah, on? Well, yes, so apparently we've solved the inflation um, uh, demon according to the Reserve Bank. But no, so this is um, interesting for a, a, a bunch of reasons. It's interesting, the, the economics of it are interesting and, um, uh, and and what it says about the direction that the economy is going in this fairly sensitive global time. But it also feeds into a big political discussion about what, we're, uh, particularly in the US, but a little bit here, about what is the sort of monetary framework, what is the fiscal framework that governments should adopt in what is now being seen as the post-neoliberal era. And the, the, the banner child for this, or the banner person for this, is, of course, um, the New York representative, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who's been talking about moni- uh, modern monetary theory as the new flag that can be waved for um, economic policy into the 21st century. As as I understand this, it's basically if, uh, the modern monetary theory is just if you can print your own money, you can't glo- go broke. Inflation is not going to be a problem until, of course, it, it is it is a problem. But but I know that, Kurt, you've done a lot of work on this, and I'd be interested in your, your perspective and, and where you see this debate is heading. Yeah, so just a quick word more about what it actually is saying. So modern monetary theory is really a whole rethinking of how money works uh, in the economy and sees the government as the, as the central agent in uh, first uh, spending money into existence. So through fiscal policy, when governments run uh, deficits, they're actually spending money into the economy, according to MMT. Uh, and so they say that, as Chris just said, that when uh, governments... Uh, have their own currency, there's no risk of default, so um, they can spend uh, as much as they like. And the only uh, thing that will stop them from uh, running up larger and larger deficits is uh, the risk of inflation. So uh, typically MMT proponents have seen the risk of inflation uh, as not quite as, uh, you know, as apparent as, as traditionally um, economists would, would argue. But they say that once inflation starts to rear its ugly head, then they can just inc- the government can increase taxes and remove money uh, from the economy. But it, uh, isn't this 
that that to my mind sounds trivially true. Yes, you can keep printing money until there's an inflation problem. Well, yeah, that's that's precisely what we've said. An inflation problem is too much money printing. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. There's uh, a lot of there's a kernel of truth in all this, and a lot of the times proponents of MMT are saying things that you know, most economists will acknowledge as far as they go. But then uh, MMT argues that this means X, while other economists say no, there's still uh, some restraints here that doesn't lead to your policy proposals. So how this has been used politically, um, so there is a sophisticated uh, theory behind um, MMT that's been put forward by the likes of Stephanie Calton and, and others, um, but it has been used by um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, others, particularly in America and the Democratic Party, uh, as just a, a licence to, to spend big and not worry about the traditional uh, restraints of uh, budgets and, and deficits. Isn't that Dan? Isn't that the significance of this um, policy? That it's it's less about the um, specific mechanism by which you would print money and and increase or prevent inflation or tax, and just a a vehicle to do things that that the left is is looking to do at the moment. It is. Um, there's a couple of interesting components to this. One is um, how economists are often trotted out to develop new theories to justify um, actions that are already going to be taken by government. So we, a good example is Paul Krugman has been someone that's talked a lot about, well, you know, you need to raise taxes on the wealthy and so forth. So you develop these theories to, to justify, to, to, to run interference in favour of um, uh, bigger government policies. And it's the same as what Kurt's saying with these um, new, you know, quote-unquote academics that are spruiking modern monetary theory, which just is a way of saying uh, we're not going to need to raise taxes today in order to pay for more spending. Um, but there's also another interesting component, which is that we already kind of do that anyway. So we have half a trillion dollars in debt for a reason, which is that governments don't want to raise taxes to pay for spending. And um, so this gets to a much more interesting point, which is does debt matter anymore? Do costs matter anymore? I mean, no one seems to notice it. No one seems to feel it. Um, we've seen Bill Shorten able to get away with not having any dollar figures on any of the costs of any of his policies, um, and people don't seem too worried about it. I, I, th- I just think there's a more fundamental challenge. Like, Chris, I, I disagree that these things are trivially true. I, th- I think the old models are broken. I mean, the, the int- interest rates now are, are down to historically very, very low levels, and in, in any sort of if you had have been in a time come out of a time capsule from you know the mid nineties, you would have said, "Oh, well, with interest rates that low, the the economy should be booming." You know, the treasurer's pulled the levers, or the RBA's pulled the levers, and yeah, you know, the lid's off. Investment uh, business investment will be uh, through the roof. There'll be full employment. But instead, what we see, you know, it's a bit like what's happened in Japan over the years. You have low interest rates. You know, quantitative easing, easing throughout the the world economy. Uh, but it's not flowing through into into business investment and real productivity or any any kind of real economic growth. Well, in part, that's because we're asking too much from monetary policy. Um, the idea that <clears throat> excuse me, the idea that um, we know exactly how um, the levers of monetary policy will flow through to economic growth and economic activity is is, is just fallacious. We don't have that clear ideas of how. Um, uh, the economy grows, how you can spark demand, how you can spark and encourage 
greater supply. We, we're just not that good at it. And I, I think... Well, uh, uh, the, the, the official economic policy makers aren't. I think the people around this table probably <laughs> have some really good ideas no, about I, what we could do to... I think <laughs> we do, but we would not be saying, let's go look at monetary policy Indeed. and let's, let's mm. go fiddle with the medium of exchange because we've got the... the there's, a little bit, there's a little bit of a sense that, you know, that governments have central banks and they've had central banks for a long time and they had it because they wanted to tax the money supply and they wanted to take over private currencies. So now that they've got control over the monetary levers, well, they might as well use it to do things to the economy. But the um, the, the basic problem that we have as an economy is sluggish or disappointing growth and we have to tackle that through the growth um, uh, mechanisms that we have, which is things like supply-side um, uh, choices, making sure that we can, we can as a society, produce more and produce more better things. That directs us in a much more challenging, from a public policy um, perspective direction, which is things like overregulation, things like innovation policy, and all these burdens that we have that, that, that we need to clear in order to get that growth. But the, um, the fantasy of modern monetary theory is that you can just take monetary policy and taxation and um, and spark growth as it is just a lever. Yeah. Well, Scott, I think Scott's hit on an important point, which is the the mechanism that w- what is the actual conduit by which you, you know, you reduce the cash rate and you end up getting more growth. Typically, that's been through the private sector lending more. But we know that that's not happening. For whatever reason, the private sector is not lending more. Banks are not uh, providing as much credit as they otherwise might do. Um, I think a key reason for that in our, our financial sector is some of the things Chris uh, touched upon. If you look at, you've got a banking role commission, the the banking executive and accountability regime. You've got reams of red tape and overregulation on banks, um, which means that they're not lending in the way that they used to. So, so central banks can keep cutting um, the overnight uh, cash rate, but that doesn't mean that the general economic conditions into which banks are lending is changing in any way, shape, or form. I'd also add that it's not just that we need to um, you know, look at things like regulation and, and, and you know, tax cuts and that sort of thing. Monetary policy that's currently being used around the world is actively damaging the economy. And that's through um, you know, this, this, this notion that we can have monetary policy and manipulate resources by pumping in new money and that that can lead to prosperity is completely fallacious. Um, so we have huge um, monetary-based expansion uh, you know, we've had interest rates at record lows for a record long time. For ne- record negative even in some countries. Yeah, exactly. And that's causing real, what we call malinvestment, so investment in, in the wrong things. Um, and also we've seen, we, we spoke about the inflation numbers um, and saying like CPI uh, isn't, isn't moving, but there are prices that are, are increasing. I think uh, everybody, all our listeners will agree that prices are increasing. You just look at, um, you know, stock the stock market, you look at, um, housing, um, money is flowing into the economy and going uh, into uh, certain assets um, that, you know, otherwise it wouldn't if we didn't have this uh, current monetary policy that we have. So uh, it's not just that we need to um, look at, you know, supply side things. We need to actively s- stop doing the thing that is actively leading to, to malinvestment in the economy. The idea that we act on the medium of exchange, you know, so money is an institution that we use to resolve a specific economic dilemma, um, and and governments now have control over that, so they decide that that's going to be the mechanism by which they change the economy and try to affect growth, is, um, I hope, a 
time limited one and and this is just based on this is the blockchain minute for this week's podcast based on the the work that we're doing at at RMIT um, the rise of cryptocurrencies and the fact that in the future we are going to be holding a vastly larger amount of what will effectively be currency or money like substitutes to make some of our exchanges means that governments are going to have less control over the medium of exchange that we use Every day, we're already in an environment, a, a environment of um, we're, we're able to hold lots of different currencies in a way that we weren't able to do previously. We're able to make exchanges around the world instantaneously. We're moving further and further along that path. And in that world, governments have less control over monetary policy. And they're going to have to stop thinking about monetary policy as, this, as the solution and think about what actually will, will help growth on the supply side. How can we boost growth? How can we boost new ideas? How can we boost new production? How can we how can we boost living standards first? And it's amazing how the uh, the institutions uh, trade on their past glories. So uh, maybe I'm living in the past, but as I say, there there was that time when the, these central bankers were seen as demigods. I mean, you know, Greenspan used to walk in to the Fed uh, for the meetings and uh, with his briefcase, and there would be telephoto lenses. Uh, focused on his briefcase, trying to work out was it heavier than normal? Like, whether was there a cut in the uh, looming or an increase looming? And and Keating in Australia and uh, to some extent Costello loved loved this idea that you know the between the RBA and the government they had all the levers. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and economics and as levers is is one of the perversities. Yeah, and actually. so two things are happening. One of which is they've confused all the institutions, as Daniel said. You know the. Uh, the the APRA has now emerged as just a bigger player in terms of what's happening in the real economy as the RBA. So now they have to have a council of financial regulators because they've got so many regulators. So they have to set up <laughs> a new body to coordinate all the regulators. So so they're, they're pushing the institutions harder and harder. They don't want to admit that actually they don't really know what to do. Mm. No one wants to admit that they don't really know what to do. So it strikes me that this is... Um, uh, th- I mean, a lot of this comes out of, of the sort of new socialist movement in the United States. But it's like the Green New Deal. It's another big-ticket solve-everything policy that, that is supposed to you know, provide us a post-neoliberal um, uh, policy framework. And, and the question that I have for you, Dan, um, is, is what does this mean for labour? So we're not seeing the same um, showy socialism out of labour that we are out of the sort of democratic socialist caucus and of the democrats in the united states but we are seeing them respond to i think a um this general intellectual environment on the left what 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 does these sorts of ideas mean for the labor party do you think given that they might be the government well labor has always been a party that has vision for for better or worse um they've always had a vision about whether it's to do with uh, you know medicare or economic reform or to do with uh, what they talk about now, climate change and so forth. So they've always been a, a party that has vision. This further allows them to have some kind of mechanism for for funding supposedly that vision without actually having to commit to higher taxes, which they've astutely avoided and um, probably not going to pay a price for it. Um, I just wanted to make another observation, a thing that's very interesting, and I wanted to get your views on um, sort of what, what the inflation issue means institutionally. So we know that the Reserve, I just looked at a bit of, data just beforehand and they, the reserve bank has a two to three percent inflation target that it's supposed to hit um out of uh, the last uh, 18 quarters it's only hit that three times right so it's it's failing right by its own by its own <laughs> measure it, it is failing and breaking down something significantly so 
Um, and then you see a Guy DeBell, who's a deputy governor, uh, a couple of months ago gave a speech. Now, was it on inflation? Was it on, you know, w- what's happening to the global monetary system? Why is the conduit of monetary policy not working? No, no, of yeah. course it was on climate, climate change. change. Climate change. Yeah. So th- the central Kelsey bankers, Freeze. they've they've basically given up and they can't, the, the Reserve Bank can't predict what inflation will be in a quarter's time, but it's going to take models that purport to be able to predict what the weather is going to be in a hundred <laughs> years time. And they say, no, we'll just put that into our algorithms and we'll get better uh, monetary policy outcomes. So, but it's, there's a much more serious point here, which is uh, institutional sclerosis and breakdown. A lot of institutions aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not working in the way that they used to work. Um, another example is the budget. The budget, um, the Commonwealth budget is increasingly becoming removed from an accurate depiction of, of finances. We know that Labor pioneered this strategy when it was in government last time with a lot of off-budget, outside-the-forward-estimate spending commitments. They're saying, well, we're spending X billion dollars on X program, but it's not in the forward estimates, which means you haven't committed to anything. Um, and then when the coalition didn't match their hypothetical spending, they said, oh, you're cutting spending, even though that spending was never there. <laughs> and the coalition's done the same thing with their tax cuts. They're saying, well, we're cutting tax cuts, uh, we're cutting taxes, uh, but in it's not 20, coming in until, 2026. Yeah, <laughs> and they say if you don't match those hypothetical tax cuts, you're raising taxes. And so it's just this, I just get this feeling that so many of our main governing institutions um, are just not working. They're not doing what they usually do. And I think people are looking, and that, and that's why you have a decline in trust. And that's why you have, um, why, why politicians are able to get away with just making things up. I think there's two things going on. So there's the, the, the there's the electoral consequences or the sort of consequences for um, uh, how we understand our political system. But there is a serious problem that we have about how our economic institutions responded or failed to respond to the global financial crisis or they 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 did precisely what you're talking about they took a lot of their policy responses off book rather than um relying on the reserve bank monetary policy to automatically stabilize the um economy they uh, the the Rudd government decided to massively stimulate and and just pour money out. So it built up this expectation that the system just not was not functioning. It could not function at that limit. When um, in Australia, at least, there was no reason to believe that that was not the case. Even um, uh, Sinclair Davidson and I um, are doing some work on the history of the global financial crisis, and and you look at what the Reserve Bank before the GFC believed that they should do. Even the Paul Krugmans of the world believed that should be done. Um, it was only if you're at the zero lower bound. And we didn't of interest get to rates. zero. We got nowhere near zero. Nowhere near zero. And that, uh, but the standard view was, and I, I'm not sure I agree with the standard view, but the standard view was you only need to fiscally stimulate the economy if you hit the zero lower bound. Now, we threw all that accumulated knowledge out the window when our politicians panicked, and they have been panicking nonstop for the last, well, it's more than a decade now, for the last over decade of um, uh, of economic policy. It's just been very messy. And that, that, my view, is why you've got these, you know, the Reserve Bank is unable to function as as it has done so for the last 20 years. Um, it's unable to um, provide that sort of stability that, that we expect in order to grow. We just need stability, and they they are not providing that for us because they think the rule book's been thrown away. So it's, it's time for somebody to actually come up with a sensible reformulation of policy 
otherwise modern monetary theory is uh, something we're going to be hearing a lot more about in future. Uh, something a little bit more domestic, uh, but also political, is childcare. Uh, and we've had big announcements recently from Bill Shorten in Australia and Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren in America. That's right. So um, Bill Shorten the other day announced um, a major childcare policy. Um, the details are um, as follows. So, of course, childcare is subject to a subsidy. It's also subject to... Um, uh, fee caps. You can charge more for childcare than the government says, but they're only going to subsidise you up to a certain amount. So under the Labor policy for households earning between 70000 and 100000 the subsidy is going to increase to almost, or up to 100% of the fee cap. And for um, those with an income between 100000 and 175000 it's going to be between 60 and 85%. This is in response to um, a, a lot of um, uh, studies and observations that the childcare market is very deeply broken, which I completely agree with. But I think they get this completely wrong, Scott, for a lot of interesting reasons. Absolutely. And actually, just to, to ground this, uh, having been through this uh, with my two delightful children, thankfully now teenagers, um, <laughs> uh, it was it was uh, the where they went and had their uh, childcare excellent centre because if if it, if anything else the amount of resources that go into it the fees are now one hundred and twenty eight dollars per day yep. so if uh, the the gross fees are probably you know mid mid fifty thousand dollars for the for the two children and uh, at the time uh, there was a certain level of subsidy but of course. Uh, it was the classic uh, one-income family and uh, you run as hard as you can. And it cre- also creates this... Uh, there was I definitely remember sitting down and doing the sums and finding that uh, my my wife was trying to re-enter the workforce and was basically paying for the childcare fees. So it was this completely circular economy. Um, and this is what we've come to. But there's a lot of sort of regulatory drivers in, in childcare. Yeah, that's right. And uh, look, I've got one child in childcare at the moment. Um, he's five and he'll be going to school next year. Um, and of course, you know, from, from the family's perspective, that will be a wonderful treat at the moment. I've got two children in school because suddenly the government will start paying for all the the quote childcare that I require, um, uh, and 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 that'll be a huge relief on on both my and my 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 wife's salary. Um, th- this is a very broken market in a lot of ways, and one of the the what the key reason is I don't think we've conceptualized what childcare is for, or I don't think we as a society agree what it is there for. Preschool childcare. Um, on the one hand, it's 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 precisely the words childcare. It's looking after the children. But the government and a lot of education theorists have added on top of that this idea that you don't just do childcare, you do a lot of early learning in the middle of that. And it makes it quasi-school. It makes it part of the education system. And, and in response, the government increases the um, uh, education requirements of the child carers. They increase the... Um, uh, the demands on what the child, the children have to do while they are at childcare, and it just over time the regulation gets higher and higher and higher, and the costs increase and increase and increase. And this is this is a huge problem, and I do not know that we have a solution to this because we have two totally different definitions of the purpose of childcare. Well, it's also to me an interesting example of how I would say cynical, but also how smart Labor are um, with with a lot of their policies because. Um, f- firstly, it's a unionised sector, so they have an, an interest in artificially inflating the wages of, of those that are in there and pushing as many children into that sector as possible, which is exactly what they want to do. 
Um, and of course, they want it to be more quote-unquote educational because that's how they get uh, the politically correct state doctrine uh, to be presented to children at as young an age as possible. So um, the left have always been about um, uh, getting the state uh, to raise children rather than families. And, yeah. and that's exactly um, the objective. of the, the objective of childcare isn't anything else other than uh, reducing the role of, of parents and families. That's That's been the objective for a very long time. And there is a, a, a statistic that was quoted by the Centre for Independent Studies in a paper they released last year that the amount of uh, childcare being uh, sourced by parents in Australia basically hasn't shifted over the last 20 years. All that's happened is moved from informal networks and informal arrangement into the formal sector yeah, it's another, at, at much greater cost. It's another example of how the state crowds out civil society. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, we're talking about like all the regulation that keeps keeps on increasing, um, destroying the industry, and then we see a problem, and then the answer is always oh, more regulation, which is um, only going to drive costs even higher. When you have uh, regulation that restricts supply, which uh, is clearly the case when you have requirements, you know, onerous requirements on um, childcare workers, and you have huge restrictions on like the building of childcare facilities and all the requirements that along with that. At the same time, you artificially boost demand by having uh, increasing subsidies. Then, if you increase, uh, if you artificially increase demand and restrict supply, of course, prices are going to go up. That's well, uh, that's economics one hundred and one by design. So the regulatory, so the national quality standard um, uh, came in at about ten years ago for childcare centres, and the regulatory impact statement for the national quality standard specifically identified that the um, childcare services will be able to pass on these increased costs to parents. And then, of course, the response to that was, well, it's okay, we'll subsidise it away. Now, if they want to nationalise it, just go ahead and nationalise it. But we're at this stage where we increase regulation, so we respond with increased subsidies, and that creates further distortions in the childcare market. So then we need to regulate, then we need to subsidise, and eventually we do nationalise. That's yeah. that, th This is precisely the path that we're on. And that the case is even stronger for nationalisation. I'm going to make the strong form case for nationalisation on the IPA podcast. The case is even stronger if we're starting to decide that childcare is not just about caring for children. It's actually about educating children. It's just part of the primary school system. Yep, and that's the objective. Yeah, that's Labor's objective. Well, actually, no, there are more, there are more than that. There is that, but to which they've added two more uh, in Shorten's announcement. So the one that's been there for a while, which is this is a social policy tool, uh, to increase the um, participation of women in the workforce, which last time I looked uh, has been increasing rapidly over a long period of time, uh, pretty autonomously without much uh, encouragement from government. And they've also now added that uh, there's a, a gender equity issue that uh, childcare workers, uh, mainly female, uh, underpaid. This has been, you know, determined, you know, a priori. So we'll add those two extra objectives to the educational objective and with all the problems Kurt just talked about, it doesn't work. So what they're now going to do is they're going to directly subsidise the wages of the workers in the sector that they've already regulated the hell out of and they know that they can't ask parents to cough up anymore without a, a revolt. Um, and this, I, I was staggered to read in the newspaper, actually grew, drew condemnation from Australia's employer groups We've actually finally found a labour policy that Australia's <laughs> employer groups are actually, are actually genuinely terrified mm -hmm. by because once uh, we start reaching into the public purse to target specific categories of workers with wage subsidies, well, wh where does that end? <laughs> it doesn't end anywhere. 
I'm I'm also interested in the, how the media talks about this. So I just saw an absolute ripping um, grab from the ABC and how they're reporting on this childcare issue. This is on AM, Sabra Lane. And it, the, the, the title here is uh, Government Labels Labor Childcare Plan Communism. <laughs> <laughs> and then the little, the, the little uh, blurb. This is just genius. The coalition <laughs> is calling the ALP's plan to pay childcare workers more while lowering the cost of daycare as economic vandalism. But Labor says it's responding to hip pocket concerns of everyday parents as well as addressing inequity in the workplace. I mean, how can you win with uh, a $1.1 billion public broadcaster just reporting <laughs> on issues in that way? I mean, I'm serious. How, how do you actually cut through? So communism wasn't even a direct quote. No, but... I but think so. I think, no, think uh, Tehan said it was... Okay. Uh, oh, good so, man. So, yeah. look, I, I will bow to no one in my criticism of the ABC, but huh. the big problem there is that the coalition does not know how to respond. So the coalition does not know how to respond to the fact that the childcare market is broken because they are just as unwilling as the Labor Party to reckon with the massive regulatory increases that have occurred over the last two decades in childcare. They don't have the capacity to do that. That's true. But what's interesting is that they did, the pay parental leave scheme under Abbott, that was a way of dealing with this. Because the whole the whole point is you make it uh, financially more financially beneficial and, and provide more choice for people to stay at home to take care of their own kids. That's the only way you get out of this. You never, you're never ever going to be able to deregulate the childcare sector. The only way you can do it um, is by having things like pay parental leave to make it less important. But the problem is that it, is that uh, the government is ideologically committed to the idea that um, women's place is in the workforce, not at home uh, looking after children or um, men for that for that matter. Um, so there, there are a number of ways that, like, I think that the government is generally um, addicted to this increase in the, the labour market participation, uh, which we've had uh, as women have entered the workforce, uh, increasing numbers over the last uh, 40 years. Um, but there are a number of things that, um, that are, pro- are a problem when we have these huge subsidies. One, people who do choose to stay home and look after their children are paying taxes that go towards subsidising uh, other people's choices. So... Um, there's a, a distortion there. There's also uh, our tax system, which we have. If you have a household, two households, both on $100,000, for example, if there's one single income, they pay far more tax than if it's uh, a two-income family. So I think there's uh, inequity in, in that, which is leading people to uh, you know, have two people in the workforce and therefore needs for, for childcare. Um, so there are a number of things that the government actively uh, in their policy, which is driving people towards, uh, you know, needing to use um, childcare um, before we even get to you know, active yeah. policy this, like this, parental leave. Yeah, I mean, the Howard, so, sorry, Chris, just briefly, that the Howard government's line on on that was essentially that this should be a choice for families. Uh, if 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 uh, uh, they, uh, you want to go back to two incomes as quickly as possible, that should be an available choice. If you prefer prefer to stay at home for the for the early years, that should be a choice. But it's but not really even while ch- even while that was happening, of course, the policy drivers, as you say, were moving in a direction where those choices are narrowing all the mm. time. But but uh, to to Kurt's point, and I think that's a really really good point. What we're doing is we're papering over some of the second, third, and fourth order consequences of a deep perversity which is um the downstream consequences of the of of progressive tax system Uh, that's really what we're talking about here we have a system that is deeply inequitous um uh as a as a tax structure and then it plays out in 
all sorts of fields all the way to the over-regulation of childcare. And we paper over that problem and then we'll fix the next problem that that causes and the next problem that that causes. But neither of the two major parties, no, really no party in the Australian political system, is capable of tackling those basic foundational problems that we have a deeply inequitous taxation system. And that was, uh, as an aside, we, we haven't actually talked much about Elizabeth Warren's uh, intervention in America, but uh, uh, National Review and others have had some fun with the fact that it was Elizabeth Warren herself who um, uh, quite a few years ago now wrote a paper on uh, some of the unintended consequences of, of two-income families <laughs> so that as, as uh, women's labour force participation increased, brought more spending power into the economy, all that's happened is that families have been bidding up the the, uh, the services, uh, particularly in uh, in education, in, in real estate, in childcare, so that you finish up chasing your tail. Yeah, and, and look, the the reason that I wanted to talk about the Elizabeth Warren policy because um, so she announced a big plan um, to eliminate student loan debt and make all public undergraduate colleges tuition free. So it's a sort of higher education version of, of the Labor Party preschool um, program but it does it fails or, or, or the error there is precisely the same as the error in the in the shorten policy in the labor policy which is um, you're papering over deep regulatory policy problems the reason that student loans have ballooned have exploded over the last couple of decades in the United States is because universities are not doing what they should do massive amounts of money in re- spending massive amounts of money dealing with regulations, pushing so much money into the administrative side. It's all based on deep, fundamental public policy problems that, again, we'll just subsidise our way out of. That's ra- and, and like Shorten, rather than tackling the basic problem, the foundational problem that have made this area of policy such a um, devil to deal with, you just, you just throw money at it. That's the solution. Yeah, and, and just to add to what you said, Chris, I actually think it's much more substantial than just sort of these regulatory and policy issues for universities. I think, and this gets back to a, a point that I wanted to explore a little bit a moment ago with uh, the purpose of institutions changing. So universities traditionally had a purpose of uh, pursuing the truth and equipping people with actual bona fide skills to help them advance their career and have a successful life. Um, but over the last few decades, there's been uh, policy levers uh, but also a cultural expectation that a good life means going to university. There's a general expectation, particularly if you go to a, a private school, that you know that you're going to go to university. If you haven't made it to university, or in some way the, the, your school has failed you, um, and also the the ongoing activism of universities. A lot of you know academics and administrators don't think that their role is to actually educate children, but to to uh, pass on a particular political view um, to. Um, to students. So I think it's another example of how um, the institution of the university is breaking down, just like the institution of monetary policy is breaking down, just like the institution of central government is um, through budget is breaking down and the variety of other um, institutions. Childcare um, should be childcare, not educating children care. Um, so all these institutions are changing, they're breaking down. And I think the issue on the centre-right is we don't really know what to do. I don't think we have any really good answers about how do we how do we deal with this massive change that's going on in these institutions that have served a certain purpose in the case of universities for hundreds and hundreds of years? Well, I think the, the answer is you just cut uh, the universities loose from uh, the government money and allow the market to come in and direct 
uh, universities towards being more um, directed towards you know, the economic benefits of you know getting training uh, young people up to be uh, you know beneficial uh, for for themselves uh, and also as as workers in the workplace. But so you can't do that. You can't do that because we've decided, just like childcare, we've decided that there are. M- there are things that universities do that are so important that the government needs to do them. The government needs to decide what the balance or needs to influence the balance of women in the workforce. The government needs to influence um, early childhood education. The government needs to influence the skill set mix. How many people are going into STEM subjects rather than art subjects? The government has decided that it needs to do all those sorts of things. And I, I, I agree that we need to get the government out of these things. But until we actually tackle those fundamental yeah. That's right. And, and look, everything's moving in the other direction, at least in the US. Uh, with Elizabeth Warren, she's basically saying anyone who's uh, got an income less than double the official official poverty line will pay zero. So it's not just taking away the market in childcare, it's taking away any kind of incentives, any kind of economic reality, all funded by the federal government. So um, uh, depending on how the Dems go uh, in future, it could be interesting times. Uh, closer to home, we have our own federal election coming up, and um, there's been some ructions in the minor parties, and uh, an interesting news poll this week, where the uh, Liberal Party allegedly clawed back one point, but the artefact of that, I think, was that Clive Palmer's uh, party, if we can call it that. Um, party of Menzies. Well, he's, he's having fun. <laughs> A party of Lions and Menzies, and who was the, the other one? Joseph Cook, was it, UAP, yeah. that he claims for the UAP? Um, uh, hit the books at 5% the first time it had registered, and there were some assumptions about the preference flow back to the coalition. But, yeah, minor parties do matter a little bit. Yeah, Clive Palmer's back. Um, Clive Palmer says that he has spent $50 million on advertising, which both sounds insane and and sounds probably pretty true, given um, how many pictures of Clive Palmer I've been seeing around my electorate of Deakin. Um, uh, There's some suggestions that in some seats, particularly in the Labor-held seat of Herbert in Townsville, um, Palmer, the Palmer United Party, or sorry, the United Australia Party, um, is polling up around 14%. So this makes, uh, to the extent that we believe these polls, he is a quite significant um, force in this election. Um, uh, the question, of course, there's a, there's a bunch of questions. Um, will Does this challenge One Nation, particularly in Queensland? Does this um, Is this just an artefact? If news poll is asking people, will they vote for the Palmer United Party? Are they hearing anything but will you vote for other party? Um, but look, it, it does speak to a big change that has happened in Australian politics over the last decade. Um, uh, and that's the, the simple fact that nearly a quarter of Australians routinely vote in the Senate at least, against all the major parties, including the Greens. So they vote for no one, uh, none of the Liberals, Nationals, Labor or Greens party in the Senate as one of their first preferences. That is a major structural change. It's a big change from even as far uh, as as recently as 2007 when that figure was something like 12 or 13%. Now a quarter of Australians are rejecting all the major parties. That's a that, that's a significant move away from the mainstream and and I think it it, it it has these interesting political consequences that Clive Palmer gets a go. Um but it's also a reflection of and I I think this is what Dan was talking about the the disillusion with institutions if you include the major long-term parties as those institutions as well mm. the, the institutional breakdown is a, is i think the main 
issue of mature liberal democracies in the West. And I don't think we know what to do about it. And that's permeating in a whole uh, range of different areas. Um, Clive Palmer phenomenon is, is one such. I think he'll take some votes away from One Nation in Queensland, but he'll also get some unique votes in Victoria because um, Clive Palmer is is seen much different to Pauline Hanson in, in Victoria. So I suspect he'll, he'll do quite well. His party will do quite well. I suspect the vote um, away from all of the major parties will be up on last year. And a lot of Australians are disillusioned and very anxious about the future and they don't have anyone providing them with a with a sort of secure view of the future. And what what's interesting is when... John Howard, I think it was in 97 or 96, said he, he, his vision was that Australians would be relaxed and comfortable. And everyone laughed at him. Uh, but, oh, boy, how do we wish for those times <laughs> where people could be relaxed and comfortable about, about the future? But, but the, uh, the problem that I think with that argument is that Clive Palmer, there is nothing to Clive Palmer. But that's the point. There's, yeah. That's the point. <laughs> nothing. just saying the word Australia a lot. Yeah, that is point. his people, policy. But that's what pe- people, people <laughs> are, I, I think, are don't know what to do. They, they don't really know what to make of Australia and, and the changes that have took, taken place over the last decade. Um, and so that it makes people right for, for, for ripe to vote for people like Palmer, who, who are, they don't, you're right, there's no real policy but, there. I mean, at least one nation actually have policy. Palmer doesn't actually no, have any policy. But there's no vision either. So it, it's, it's like going from the people who have mostly no idea for someone who definitely has absolutely no idea what would occur if he got into but, power. But that's the, point, it's, that's the point about One Nation, though. I mean, they're, they're close substitutes, if you like. Like, what One Nation has, be, has been uh, destabilised, and this is the problem for small parties, is um, it's one thing for Pauline Hanson to make a brand of herself. It's a, been another thing to actually create a stable party out of that which is able to vet candidates, have find candidates who aren't insane, survive things like the, the Al Jazeera set up so so Palmer's benefited from uh, the perceived instability in one nation so that it, it just proves again that it's people looking for some kind of a, a protest vote and they'll just find the uh, the, the uh, what's what's the, what do you call it satisfying you just you just find <laughs> you just find whatever's there that looks the like it might do the job yeah yeah and I think um, that's quite right I think both one nation and the um, uh, United Australia Party are are substitutes. There's no policy there. Um, we know that um, Pauline Hanson has had trouble keeping people, uh, you know, elected to to government, uh, elected to to parliament um, in her party. So it's very, very personality driven. And I think um, while Palmer mightn't have any um, you know, real policy, he has had a huge ad blitz. He's had uh, ads on TV and and signs everywhere. And the ads are actually, you know, then. They're quite convincing to people. You just say, um, you know, we want tax cuts now. Um, fast trains. Yeah, fast trains. All this, you know, big infrastructure. So I want tax cuts um, and fast trains. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, just, he's saying a lot of things that the people want. I want a piece want. of this government. So, you know, if the government's <laughs> going to be big, I want a piece of that. Yeah, action. so <laughs> he convinces, like, the damn wilds of the world, um, you know, just by, you know. So yeah, I think say there is success uh, to be had, I reckon, in, in that approach. But um, I think um, it looks to me that um, Palmer is trying to, put himself off as sort of a, this Trump-like figure, but mm. without but, any but actual... That's right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, and the exception to this in, in, in respect to the minor parties is the Greens um, in that, you know, they've been at it for a while and they, they have a brand and they've had their own party problems uh, in New South Wales and Victoria. But um, uh, so there's a level of consistency there. I mean, but they've still got 9% of the vote. 
But because this is a half-Senate election, uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into seats for them. Uh, Sarah Hanson-Young has said that she's very concerned about her seat. could be uh, particularly with the Democrat uh, alliance, um, uh, sorry, Centre Alliance, uh, Nick Xenophon's party. So it might well be 25% of the vote, Chris, but it's not going to be 25% of the seats in the Senate, which maybe in the end will just increase that sort of sense of frustration uh, that you've, you've lodged a protest vote, but it hasn't really translated because of the way the Senate quotas work into the makeup of the Senate. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, but I, I, I'm just, I am genuinely stuck on this idea of a protest vote. And I can understand a protest vote for a party like One Nation that has, um, I wouldn't say it's got a platform, but it definitely brings with it a set of policies or a framework by which to see the world. And it's built that up over over um, you know nearly 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 25 years now. It it has it it's established that. But Palmer and some of these other parties are just his face and saying the word Australia a lot. And if we vote for them as protests and nothing changes and you get this clownish um, uh, politician who, if we recall, last time it was in Parliament, was aggressively trying to vote for cli- pro-climate or uh, vote for climate change mitigation policies, um, uh, then it, 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 it's unclear how we're supposed to um, respond to that. That's right, but the the reason why some people vote for Palmer is because he is an obvious parody of everything that's wrong with politicians, and that was the same as Trump. I mean, it, everyone says, "Oh, Palmer is empty." Well, does that distinguish him from any other politician? <laughs> in Canberra? I mean, he is just so, and that was Trump, so open about it, such so obviously over the top, exaggerated, just like all politicians are. It's just it's just this caricature. Everybody knows. Uh, a lot of people know and feel that politics is a joke. So why not vote for a joker? It reminds me of uh, that US mayoral election a few years ago where they'd printed the ballot papers and uh, the incumbent mayor actually died before the date of the election and he still got voted back. <laughs> why not? <laughs> but this is, the, this That's is, one way to stop government policy, though. If we have vo- <laughs> this is something that we should not be happy about then. If, 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 if that analysis is correct, Dan, we should be deeply concerned because voting for those jokes is not going to fix the institutional degradation that we have. And in fact, it's going to significantly increase it. That's right. um, Because if you gave Clive Palmer the control over the RBA or, um, or really any institution of government, it is going to go downhill very, very quickly. That's right. And that, and that's why I said, we don't know what to do. We, We don't know how to solve these very deeply embedded institutional problems and the significant amount of division that exists in the country. We don't, I mean, it's really an unprecedented amount of division, I think, that we have um, in Australia and in Western countries. Um, I don't know whether the institutions can can deal with that. I'm not sure they can. I wonder whether, uh, Chris, your comment makes me think. Over the past 20 years, we've, we've seen across the West the rise of populist parties. And they sort of broke, in, in various countries, they've sort of broken through in anathematization of the so-called populist parties. So they start as, you know, ultra-right, far-right, madmen, lunatics, you know, outside the official consensus. Uh, and then, you know, I'm thinking of, say, Austria, uh, where they actually have finished up part of the governing coalition and have, you know, votes in the 40%. It, it's, it's almost like 
if you say you're not allowed to break from the consensus and and we will seek an, out and destroy any kind of uh, populist party trying to emerge, um, that it, it remains fragmented. You know, maybe this is still just embryonic in Australia because Australia has done better than other countries. I think it does better at social inclusion than any other countries. It doesn't have the mass base for populism, but you know. It, all that it's lacking is an institutionalisation. So, so uh, you know, as you say, clown politicians like Clive Palmer are still in the mix, but only because nothing better has come along or nothing has been allowed to survive the process. Yeah, that's probably right. And I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking the example is um, a really powerful example close to home is the New Zealand um, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters, who is the head uh, of the New Zealand First Party and now is in government um, and has been completely acclimatised to what is sort of a soft left government um, uh, in in that country. Uh, I think there's a big story there and maybe our system where um, we've got a large Senate crossbench um, either encourages um, lots of different populists to try to build up because if you can be at the head of a ticket of a small party that's being that's better than being at the bottom of a ticket for a medium-sized party um uh, I, I, so i, I th- that well could be the case um in that case though I, we're going to move into a world where we're just seeing a large group of clowns hold the crossbench um in perpetuity a, a shifting and, and constantly rotating group of clowns. I'm not totally against that it's because a I... Clownocracy. I, a clownocracy. I'm not totally against that because I think that's healthy. Government should have to negotiate with lots of parties to pass um, laws in the Senate, and I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with them having to negotiate with independence in the House as well. But that, that could be the Australian solution to the populist problem, where in the United States, someone can... A, a populist can take over... A major political party in Australia, we get just a steadily rotating series of clowns that you have to negotiate with in the Senate. But a better solution might be serious parties like the Conservatives or the LDP, uh, who have some great people, of course. Uh, we have come to that part of the show where we talk about books and culture, and our panelists share their picks for what they've been reading, watching, or listening to. Who would like to kick us off? I'll go. Um, so I've been reading uh, Art Laffer and Stephen. Moore's uh, book, Trumponomics, Inside uh, the America First Plan to Revive Our Economy. Uh, so this was a book that was uh, written with uh, Larry Kudlow as well, who's um, the director of the National Economic Council now um, that Trump appointed him to. Um, and Stephen Moore is also um, Trump's pick for the, for the Federal Reserve. So it's, uh, you know, those guys are very topical at the moment. So this sort of traces, uh, you know, has takes an inside look at three uh, very free market uh, pro-immigration economists and how they came to be working uh, with Trump, the candidate, um, and, you know, the, the sort of disconnect there between uh, some of their ideas and then working with Trump's uh, economic agenda. So it's a really interesting book that um, that really takes you into the inside uh, to see, you know, the negotiation of how, in, like, these economic ideas, you know, meet reality in politics um, and how, uh, you know, how Trump took on uh, these ideas. And, yeah, it's really uh, insightful in that regard. Um, so it's re- they sort of present uh, Trumponomics as this sort of, um, you know, they... You know, lower taxes, uh, deregulation, uh, pro-energy um, and those things. 
uh, and sort of downplay a little bit uh, Trump's, uh, you know, deviations from, you know, the free market side of things and and immigration as well. How, how do they negotiate that? So the, the two big stories that Trump uh, – a big part of um, Trump's appeal as president is the tax cuts and the deregulation, but the primary appeal of him as a candidate and his selling points was immigration and trade. Yeah, so they um, they stress the, the you know merit based um, immigration and say that Trump does have some points on uh, illegal immigration and they really speak to uh, the political side of things and how this sort of um, populist wave occurred because of the problems uh, faced by many people uh, as they saw from illegal immigration. Uh, the other thing is when they're talking about uh, free trade, they do acknowledge that you know some of these free trade deals aren't aren't fair. There aren't um, they aren't, you know, purely f- free trade um, agreements in the first place. So um, they see, you know, value in Trump yeah. coming in and, and uh, you know, negotiating with, with China. And, 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 and Trump also sold tax cuts as a, as a jobs policy. And, and so he's been hammering it again this week. He's paid, paid, had a big, uh, big day on Twitter. I see when, <laughs> I, when I looked at the feed this morning. You know, the, the latest ec- quarterly economic growth figures in the US were, you know, plus 3%. And, you know, the criticism was that the, the tax cuts they had was just going to be like a sugar hit and then it'll disappear. But um, uh, jobs growth has been excellent. Economic growth has been excellent. And Trump was able to sell, you know, Art Laffer's argument for tax cuts as a as a jobs policy, not a tax policy. Yeah, definitely. And that's um, really comes through in the book, the, you know, the supply side story that, um, you know, tax cuts is a, is a pro-growth policy. Um, and so they, they, they say, you know, um, they went to Trump and they said, you know, we think that if we lower um, taxes, we can get, you know, three to four percent growth. And Trump said, I want five. You know, I want to. I want to. I want a bigger tax cut. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. this is. But this is more of that, like, oh, I'll just use the levers. Um, uh, yeah, I would like five percent, please. It, it, it's yeah. a little bit fantasy in, and and it, again, it's the it's the problem that we look to the government when we know that growth comes from the private sector, and we think that the government can just step in and fix problems, even if it's fixing problems in a way that I'm sympathetic with, you know, tax cuts or, or deregulation. But it's not just the sort of thing that you you turn the tone on the growth switch and then turn it off when the when left wing governments come into power. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting, um, you know, reading these guys who are very pro uh, Republican, uh, and also like this, seeing their attitude towards deficits as well, because uh, they're, they're very critical of uh, Obama's deficits. But then when Trump comes in and <laughs> increases the deficit, um, that they justify not so they, much. Yeah. Well, they say that it's it's um, at least the deficit is is funding growth, <laughs> as opposed to um, you know increasing welfare. Um, all sorts of social programs that um, Obama brought in. Very good. Um, Dan? Oh, I've been reading a book by uh, Yoram Hazoni called The Virtue of Nationalism. Uh, basically, it's, a, it's a, a book that talks about the you know, where our uh, freedoms come from, where our liberal institutions come from. It takes very much a uh, historical empiricist view, a traditionalist view of where these, where these things come from. Basically, that they're the product of, of uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of of uh, history from from the English and and brought um, into different nations uh, via that conduit and and that these freedoms that we value and 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 the other institutions in society that we value are, are housed within nations and the nation state and the nation state should be uh, you know the preeminent body for for politics and for for organizing 
um, societies uh, and policies. So uh, it's, a, it's a good, interesting take where nationalism has for a number of years been a bit of a dirty word. It's becoming a little bit more acceptable um, today. So it is also... At, um, what he juxtaposes his nationalism against what he calls liberal internationalism. So he's not... He's I think you could fairly call it conservative. So he's not of the view that we should be exporting liberalism or liberal institutions to different countries and different cultures and different civilizations that different nations and different civilizations have their own quest, their own path to go on. And, uh, you know, we should follow our own path, protect our own traditions and institutions um, as far as we can. And, and the nation state is, is, you know, the main body by which um, he believes that that can be best achieved. Isn't this... So <clears throat> I'm very sceptical of this argument and... One of the problems that I see is it really strikes me as a deeply cultural relativist claim. So, on the one hand, I haven't read the book, so um, forgive me if I'm if I'm um, being unfair. But um, it, on the one hand, we're talking about the eternal principles of liberalism that were passed down to us in Australia from our British traditions, which I agree with. Liberalism comes from a specific historical context. But on the other hand, if French people act in ways that are illiberal in France, we have no way to criticize them because those eternal principles aren't universal principles. They're, um, you know, if, if they do it that way in France or in Saudi Arabia or in China, that's, that's the Chinese or Saudi Arabian or French way. Haven't we, doesn't it abandon the idea of universal moral principles in a sort of cultural relativistic fashion? Uh, to, to an extent it does. Uh, I, I can understand the scepticism of universalism. Uh, we see it, we've seen it practiced universalism historically in a lot of very um, negative ways. I mean, you could say that the Soviet Union was an example of that, trying to export communism uh, clearly, Germany in World War Two was an example. I mean, often people say Germany is 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 an example of why nationalism is bad, but Germany was actually an imperialist, had imperialist ambitions to take over Europe. The EU is an example of uh, universalism. The UN is an example of universalism. So I don't think that there's no such thing as fundamental values that apply to all humans at at all times. But I do believe we need to be a little bit skeptical of people that make that claim because we know historically that has been used. Um, as a basis on which to justify the expansion of certain regimes, and um, it's it's you know I think it's it's important that people are just a little bit humble about the ability to know well, you know China for example is a five thousand year old civilization with a fairly unique culture. Uh, maybe one day it will become more of a liberal democratic country, um, or maybe it won't. I, I think it's very difficult for us to say and to predict what other people want and how they want to get to their. You know, to it, their points. Is this a is this a wild over response? So I agree a hundred percent with um, the idea that often people took the idea that there is a universal principle called liberalism that um, morally should apply to everyone. People should be free. They should be able to make their own choices in life and and all that sort of thing in a low regulation economy. And then some people took that idea and said, okay, well, you know, if you're not liberal, then, you know, we can invade you. Like tanks will bring you liberalism. Um, and then we're in, we're in Iraq and all this sort of thing. Um, and I, I think that's a, that's a, that was a big fundamental error that you can't just make people free by using mm. um, guns. But, 
at the same time, the counter response cannot be, well, you know, there's no such thing as universal liberal principles and every country is its own thing. And if they're like that in Saudi Arabia or China, then that's just the Saudi Arabian or Chinese way. Um, surely we can have a acceptance that there is a universal liberal ethos that is desirable, that we think is morally correct, but also at the same time reject the mechanism by which states have tried to force that on other people, whether through guns, whether through the United Nations, whether through these globalism I think, institutions. I think we can, and that's, that, that is in a way that one of the points he's making is that um, the way in which we receive these ideas is, you know, because if I take what you're saying correctly, that the, the, the quote-unquote proper way to um, spread liberalism or spread liberal ideas is through ideas themselves. Liberally, and, and, yeah. And <laughs> liberally, yeah. And that's, that's kind of the point he's making is, is the way you do that is, well, we've received these institutions. We've received them throughout time. And so uh, and they, they are protected by our nation states. Um, it's an interesting question. This is a little bit provocative, but I wonder historically if liberalism has actually been spread through ideas. I mean, we know that we have liberalism in Australia and Canada, the United States, not because people read a book, but because the English came with guns. It's an interesting historical question as to whether ideas, you know, if you, know, if you go to China and talk about liberalism, are you actually able to you know, affect that very deep civilizational history that they have? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have an answer to that, but I think that's one of the interesting questions to ask. And this is one of the things that hasn't he uh, said recently on Dave Rubin, on the Rubin Report, when he's talking about, he brings up the issue of freedom of speech and he says that this is an institution that we've inherited uh, in you know, from uh, our, tra our traditions and it's not something that is necessarily um, uh, you know, propagated by ideas as much as receiving this tradition and maintaining the traditions in which we receive these things. And, and he talks about you know the way that he interacts with his uh, nine kids about, um, you know, Imagine the childcare fees on that. <laughs> <laughs> so he talks about like, the importance of maintaining uh, the traditions that are the um, the vessels of of these ideas, like, uh, these institutions such as freedom of speech. Uh, it's not just this uh, you know this rationalist argument uh, for for freedom of speech. It's something that comes to us uh, through these traditions, and it's important to maintain those. Yeah, that that's true, but I I think what we're ignoring is. Yes, the general um, the, the the universal liberalism that we subscribe to was that we, we we came out of a very British version of that. But that universal liberalism, the idea that people are um, deserve to be free, deserve to be able to make their choices in an open economy and in an open society, is actually something that spontaneously arises in multiple cultural traditions around the world at different times, unconnected from each other. And one of the things that we don't talk enough about as a as a liberal movement is um, the fact that you know there are Chinese writers who are identifying these liberal traditions. There are African writers who are identifying liberal traditions in Europe. It's not just Britain. It's the Dutch. It's the Polish. It's the French. They're all the Italians. They're all independently coming to learn about the idea of individual liberty um, in within their own 
cultural traditions. Now, that tells me that there's something universal about that. And it is true that the British version dominates the world, no, and that, that might be because of tanks. No, that was very eloquently put, Chris. Uh, sounds like another book. That might, <laughs> that might be uh, book oh, number gosh. 12 for yeah. Dr. Berg. Yep. Uh, in the meantime, uh, our wonderful producer, James Bolt, will include links to uh, Zoni's book and to the Dave Rubin interview in our notes field if you'd like to go to that on your podcast platform. Uh, similarly, uh, we'll put up a link. Uh, I will briefly talk about a book that as editor of the IPA Review, I actually commissioned a review of, so you don't have to read it. It's called The Rise <laughs> of Victimhood Culture. It is an excellent book, but it is very, it's an academic work of sociology, but uh, fascinating as it's traced all these things that we hear about, um, uh, the notions of hate speech, um, uh, so-called rape crisis on campus, microaggressions, all these sort of epiphenomena of identity politics. We talk a lot about the influence of the ideas. These guys are sociologists. It's by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. Uh, Its subtitle is Microaggressions, Safe Spaces and the New Culture Wars. And the point they're making is that, you know, this is a shift in culture um, that's taken place particularly amongst the younger generation. Once upon a time... Uh, Western cultures were about honour and then over time they migrated to respect. We respected each other's boundaries and, and, uh, and the people at the top of the status trees were those who were most, most worthy of honour or most worthy of respect. Now to get to the top of the status tree, you have to be the biggest victim. <laughs> Do they talk about why that's happened? Um, trace that uh, some of some of it's generational. They probably haven't hypothesised so much. I mean, people like Jonathan Haidt have, have linked it to the rise of of smartphones and social media and so on. The, these guys have um, uh, perhaps haven't developed so much causal explanations as they're just trying to unpack this. Like they're they're looking like sociological literature is rich in things like um, the notion of a moral panic. Mm. And uh, the left always loves, loves to accuse the right of a moral panic about you know virtually <laughs> any issue it identifies. But you look at the mass hysteria uh, on, particularly in the US, but to a lesser extent in other countries um, uh, in the Anglosphere around um, uh, uh, issues of hate speech or, or, or um, so-called rape crises, which Bettina Arndt's been talking about. These, these are moral panics. That you know, there's false allegations. It's almost like you know, sort of the uh, the witchcraft trials at, at, at times. You know, the the mobs. These are these are mass phenomena. So so they're very much concerned. Just first of all, to identify that as a thing and say this is really important. And the implications are that. Um, when you have a mass hysteria, you say, you know, the people involved caught up in that say, rule of law doesn't matter, free speech doesn't matter, due process doesn't matter. Well, not uh, only do they don't matter, they say that they're actual impediments to justice. Indeed. They invert it. Yes, just, justice being, you know, the notion of social justice being very much tied. Social justice is whatever's good for the victim. Mm. So the only important thing here is victim, and only victims can mobilise notions of justice. So if you're not a victim... You, you don't really have any standing. This is right. why this is so important. Yeah. And uh, so I'll put up a link to that. There was an excellent review um, by Tiffany Jenkins, who's a British sociologist um, that Helen Dale put me on to, and uh, so you can read that online. Chris? Yeah, so um, given that last week I read the Bible, 
Um, I'm, I've got something a bit lighter <laughs> please, this please, week because um, I can't really recommend the Bible. Um, uh, so I've been watching Russian Doll on Netflix. It is a great, fun and actually very affecting show. It's um, a joint production of the main actor who's Natasha Leon, who people of my generation will best remember her from American Pie and Amy Poehler, who um, of course was the showrunner for Parks and Recreation. Um, Russian Doll is a version of the Groundhog Day story, but imagine if instead Bill Murray was constantly dying and he woke up instead of in his bed, he woke up at his 36th birthday party at a very alcohol and drug fueled 36th birthday party. It, this is a very funny, very clever um, show. It's about that. So, so it's her 36th birthday party. So I, I being 36 can very much relate that period where, you know, you, you're past your quarter life crisis, but you haven't quite reached your midlife <laughs> crisis. So it's that you, you're sort of unsure. There's a, it, it's a, it's a um, strange age. Um, uh, but but a really fantastic show and, and highly recommend. Um, it, so it, is it, it a show or a movie? Did you it's say? a show. It's so a show. it's eight or so episodes. It's I, I'm I'm pleased. I don't think it's been renewed for a sequel, and I like that because it's actually quite a nice. It, it, not all TV shows have to go on forever. Um, I, I know that's a big claim to make these days, but it leaves you wanting more. It actually wraps it up in a very clever and nice way and, and very affecting way but it, it, it's a it, it is a cracker of a show and I, I really recommend it if you need a bit of downtime yep seen a couple uh, of episodes you stop reading the bible and you know <laughs> <laughs> i need a break <laughs> and uh, put down your yoramazoni and um, and move on uh, very good uh, thank you chris uh, that's been our books and culture segment and this has been looking forward if you're not already a subscriber please press the appropriate buttons on your smartphone now Looking Forward is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support our research and this podcast. You can join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you. Daniel Wild. Thank you. And our newbie, Kurt Wallace. Thanks. Great to have you on the show, Kurt. Uh, first of many appearances on shore. And a big thank you to our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.